from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Larry Fink's latest letter to CEOs, electrifying delivery trucks, five trends to watch in climate-aligned finance, and the latest in potato sustainability? This spuds for you this week on 350. It's January 21st, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350, episode 300 for those of you keeping score at home. So a bit of a milestone for us. Whatever the episode, we're glad to have you with us and joining me from chilly Midland Park, New Jersey. It's the always warm Green Biz editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I greatly prefer spuds to buds. So (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your pun there and the... uh, the intro, uh, I hope you're well in Oakland, California. Things are, uh, you know, as I like to say, living the pandemic dream here, um, as, as, as you are. Uh, it's what a dream it is. But, um, hey, you know, but I bought an airline ticket yesterday. Uh, I can only guess where you're going. Is it somewhere warm in the southwest? It is yeah. somewhere warm in the southwest. Yeah. What about you? Oh, I have I have my uh, flight to Phoenix uh, coming up next month to attend Green Biz 22. And um, and yes, for those of you who keep asking, uh, rightfully so, it is on. We are going to be there. And we have, uh, I have to say, off the charts registration. Uh, people are just signing up in droves. The, the hotel is sold out. The hotel across the street is sold out. People are scrambling to find other accommodations, of which there are, there are plenty. Um, people want to be together, and um, I know, I know, I do, and um, and we're <laughs> going to do it uh, carefully. Um, yeah. we're, we're going to be actually the same uh, protocols that you and I had uh, experienced in Glasgow when we were there in November for COP, which is um, actually a little bit tougher. You have to. Um, uh, oh, no, I guess it's about the same. You have to have a uh, negative COVID test within a couple or three days of arriving. It's going to be daily testing, um, of course, masking and social distancing and all that sort of thing. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're going to create the the safest damn event, <laughs> you know, that we could that you uh, can. And can yeah. in this day and age. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people are, are ready. How about, mm-hmm. you know... How about you? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I, I I just was traveling, as you know, last week. It's it's so still so weird. Um, but I have a whole box full of uh, uh, a drawer full here of uh, antigen tests. Um, and I'm really grateful that uh, we are taking these measures because I, I be, people do want to be in person. And I I've had a lot of people asking me if it's still on, but more because they want to make sure that they they get you know because they're eager to go and, and they want to get their plane tickets. So. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm fingers crossed here under my desk. You know, I'm thinking that at least here where I am, that we've hit our peak with Omicron, and um, you know, by the time we we will see each other in four weeks, we'll we'll be we'll be actually overkill. But I'm glad we're being overkill. 
Yeah, God, I hope so. And by the way, if you're listening to this on Friday, the 21st of January, you should know that there's a rate exp expiration that uh, yeah. enforced today. So in other words, the rate is going to go up after the close of business today. So if you are thinking of coming to Green Biz 22 in February, uh, February 15th, the 17th in Phoenix or Scottsdale, Arizona, this would be a really good day to sign up. So um, forewarned is forearmed. So let's uh, move from there um, backwards to check out the Week in Review. So Heather, I'd love you to hear from you about this story that our senior writer C.J. Klaus did about a company called Merchant's Fleet, which I'd never heard of, uh, and their electrification of delivery vehicles. Uh, what's going on here and what's the news? Yeah, so I had never heard of them either, Joel, until a few weeks ago when we started seeing all sorts of electric van, electric truck announcements associated with the Consumer Electronics Show. I don't know why these are considered to be consumer electronics devices, but but autos are big for, um, and, and automobile automotive technology is big in the early January timeframe. And Merchant's Fleet is a sort of a mid-sized fleet company based in New Hampshire, and they are also one of the earliest customers for Bright Drop, which is the General Motors subsidiary that's uh, selling electric cargo vans and mid-sized delivery trucks. A couple of their very high-profile customers are Walmart and FedEx. Uh, so Bright Drop is um, up and at them, if you will. They're, they're doing a lot of orders this month. And Merchant's Fleet, what I found intriguing about them is that they're basically betting on electrification as a way of uh, you know, becoming a differentiator. If they're an up-and-coming fleet, as I mentioned, so they've got um, they've ordered pre-ordered 40,000 electric vehicles. That's about $2.4 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, and they manage the fleets of other companies. So there are, you know, I, this isn't a market that's kind of new to me, although one I think we should be paying a lot more attention to, which is there's lots of companies out there that manage corporate fleets, um, that manage the truck fleets and logistics fleets for for companies out there that, that aren't going to want to commit to buying these on their own. And Merchant's Fleet is basically making this a differentiator. They're saying, yeah, this is what we're doing. This is why we're the, the company you should want to work with. And, and here we go. So that's the story. Um, again, they are making a bet on General Motors and Bright Drop. And uh, I think it's, I just think it was a, a, a good company to, to kind of highlight and to showcase for our readership. The other thing I like about them is that they are not just focused on big companies, they're focused on mid-sized companies. So whenever I see an organization that can address, um, you know, frankly, the, the, uh, the small and mid-sized enterprises out there, that makes me, that gives me um, hope and perspective and, and optimism that, that, that this is kind of trickling down into to the other businesses in the world. So I mentioned the 40,000 number. That's what they've pre-ordered. Their fleet today is about 160,000. And when, when, you, when you think about where that sits in the fleet management operator world, if you will, I'm not even sure what you would call these companies, fleet management companies. The biggest one, one of the biggest ones has more than a million vehicles on the road globally. So I guess you consider these, these folks mid-sized, but again, it's, I think it's just a wonderful um, way of differentiating that this company is differentiating from other competitors. Yeah, and are the vehicles that different? Uh, because, I mean, there are electric vehicle delivery vehicles uh, passing by my street in Oakland, uh, FedEx, UPS, uh, Amazon, and, and a bunch of others. 
Um, what's, you know, are these fleets uh, becoming that much more innovative, the vehicles themselves? So the vehicles themselves, I think what one of the things that Bright Drop is leaning on is the fact that it has the production capabilities. So like, if you want to talk about Bright Drop for a moment, the General Motors advantage is they, they think they can get these things out there quicker than some of the other companies we're hearing about, like from Rivian or from Stellantis, um, there are lots of basically the big fleet operators that are buying directly. So like Amazon, Walmart, and so forth, UPS, FedEx, they're all hedging their bets. You know, they're buying from different companies. And what makes this, like I said, what makes this particular company interesting is that they're going to go and help other smaller companies that aren't going to buy these things themselves and provide these to, you know, basically lease them, you know, you will manage this for you and so forth. So they're, you know, they're saying that this is our fleet and now we can do that. You know, we can act. You like what Amazon prime is doing with their electrification. Well, we can do that for you. That's essentially the value proposition of, of merchants fleet. Yeah. Nice. Well, let, let's move over to another story. And this is, I'm going to keep you talking here, Heather, because uh, <laughs> this is a piece you did um, about uh, another, uh, well, earlier stage company, I think called the economy, uh, a Swedish software firm and, and some work they're doing with MasterCard and Ikea to create consumer carbon budgets uh, or uh, carbon accounting software and calculators uh, that consumers use. It feels like, I've seen this movie before, but I'm open to uh, the the latest edition. What's going on here? So I don't know. Have we seen this movie before? Maybe. I think um, you're referring to these tools that um, some of the banks and so forth have helped uh, have put out in the past to help consumers calculate their carbon footprint. Um, what this company does, it's a little bit different, um, is that it is basically helping the brands understand um the, the footprint of their products, so the scope three footprint, and then by extension, they can they can help their consumers understand, you know, whether that footprint is higher or lower than something else that they might be considering, or at least maybe if they can't compare it, they can at least just understand what it means. And so, why economy? Why this week? So there's a Swedish firm um, just raised another 19 million in equity capital from a German venture capital firm called Commerce Ventures. And for perspective, that's almost as close to what they've already had. They've over the last four years of existence, they've raised 24 million. So this one is like puts it way over. The um, the new investors for this for this round are are Inca Group, which of course is the parent of IKEA, and City Ventures, the venture capital arm of Citigroup, and one of their biggest partners um, and also an investor from the past is Mastercard. So what Dekami is doing that's pretty interesting is that they are basically um, allowing, like, let's just say, Joel, I don't know how how much you spend, you think about the purchases that you're making, but like, let's just say that you decided in any given week you didn't want to have over a certain amount of, of emissions associated with your purchases. Um, you could make your, basically make yourself a budget. <laughs> and then any MasterCard, so what MasterCard does is they have this associated with some of their, their credit card products. And if you buy something, it calculates that for you. So you would know as a consumer, you would be conscious of what the, the, the services and the goods that you're buying, what kind of impact you're having. You know, the idea, ideas to have, you know, uh, an influence on behavior. I don't know if it will help, but, you know, that's that's the basic premise. 
Yeah, well, what works in Sweden may or may not work outside of Sweden. But I guess I, I think the, the problem I have is that uh, a challenge is that um, you need context here. I mean, I don't I could set a number, but I wouldn't even know what number to mm -hmm. set. And I'm, you know, have mm -hmm. a little bit of knowledge about this topic here. But I think where this would work is if um, it would tell me like the my utility does it says uh, your usage is higher than your neighbors or some something that would put it in context and tell me how i'm doing particularly compared to others even then i don't know how many people would uh, would care and do this but i mean i love the idea because we need to get people thinking about this stuff I'm just, uh, I, I guess I'm a little crotchety on this stuff these days about the, the, the willingness of consumers to actually make changes beyond the people who would likely do this or the ones who are already making some kinds of changes. Can I tell you what's even more interesting to me? Of course. Is that that scope three impact, right? So even if the consumers don't care, the the bank will see the, the, the numbers, the brands will start seeing the numbers. So if MasterCard can report back to, you know, companies that are, you know, take, take pick your e-commerce site. If, if MasterCard can report back to that site or to a specific brand and say, in this month, this is the impact associated with purchases of your products, companies might be able to start getting a better picture of their scope three impact. I don't know. That's just a thought. So that's, it just has this just has interesting implications for me and so i feel like it's one of those things i want to watch i you know what will it work i don't know but it just we need to get a better handle on scope three and this seems like it could have ways of, of doing that over time yeah yeah well that brings us to the third story here one that came out of uh, rmi the organization formerly known as the rocky mountain institute elizabeth uh, harnett and uh, sharvan Vat, uh with their center for climate aligned finance and they offered some uh, uh, another early uh, in the year uh, trends to watch, but specifically in climate-aligned finance. Now, I think this is uh, this is geared towards financial institutions, banks, and others in terms of the kinds of trends that we'll be seeing that will be affecting them, and and obviously as a result, uh, some of us as well. Um, but you know, the first one I think is, I mean, these are really powerful because, you know, as we move the money markets and as, as, as you'll hear later from um, Grant Harrison and as he and I talk about uh, Larry Fink's uh, letter that, that dropped this week, the CEO and chairman of BlackRock, um, you know, the money drives so much of, of, of behavior and change. And I guess that's the point of the MasterCard uh, story as well. But financial institutions are going to have to lean in ever more so on their climate commitments. They're going to have to start substantiating their commitments much more than than they did have before. They just can't wave their arms and saying, we're going to do this by 2050. Uh, they need to have uh, uh, more in-depth transition plans for how uh, they're going to meet those net zero commitments over time, not just uh, you know the end goal. And, uh, uh, and then they're, how they're going to be held accountable for these targets linked to what they call real economy impact, not just theoretical ones, um, because the actions to align portfolios don't always lead to emissions. Uh, sometimes it's it uh, they companies divest the, the the dirty part of their business, and so their their ESG rating goes up and uh, portfolio impact improves, but uh, the, the planet doesn't see any change. And so 
I love that this, this is uh, sort of where the world will be going. And of course, we actually have to see it executed now. But I, I do believe that the uh, these trends seem to be in place as we uh, look at ESG and sustainable finance, and they become more and more and more part of the sustainability landscape. Yeah, I think my favorite, <laughs> my favorite item, if I can have a favorite, was the prediction was the focus on high emitting sectors will widen and deepen. Uh, I didn't know. Uh, so, uh, and I'm intrigued by this because one of the most impactful developments for the shipping and maritime shipping and, and that industry was, I think, the Poseidon principles, which basically set out rules for financing new purchases of, of, of ships and, and these, these huge cargo vessels for shipping. Um, and that was that that happened a couple of years ago now. Oh my gosh, it's three years ago now. Wow. Um, 2019. And so I, when that, that whole thing came out, I thought that was such a brilliant move. I mean, like basically these are long-term purchases and so forth. And, and like the Poseidon principles for shipping, I think were very impactful in helping that industry move forward. And I didn't know that there's a similar agreement being launched for global steel um, coming soon, you know, and I guess that's that's one of those things I was reading the story is like one of those note to self, you know, watch this story because we need to cover it. Um, and, and that there are other sectors uh, lining up too, um, aviation, aluminum, cement and concrete and real estate. I was like, whoa, OK, these are really impactful, important things to come into place. So. Yeah, that was like that. That one was like one of those news gems, you know, for me, yeah. like a goldmine of things to cover this yeah, year. Yeah, those so-called hard to abate sectors, as you're saying, aviation, shipping, aluminum, steel, concrete, uh, mm -hmm. buildings, are turning out to be not so hard to abate. I mean, if we they just need to to lean in and have a plan for those, and we're seeing in each of those. Um, uh, significant initiatives um, and driven in many cases by the financial um, community, uh, financial institutions um, around the world that are starting to direct capital or restrict capital in some cases or charge more for certain kinds of capital. Uh, that's a very exciting piece of this and um, a little optimism for a wintry January day. This week, Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock, the $10 trillion investment firm, published his annual letter to CEOs, always an event in the business world since BlackRock owns stock in pretty much every company. And it's required reading in boardrooms and C-suites. But what did he actually say? Well, here to talk about that is the Green Biz Green Finance and ESG analyst Grant Harrison. Hey, Grant. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going good. You're uh, traveling in New York now. First of all, before we get into the letter, um, how's New York these days? Well, yes, it is an auspicious time to be talking about Mr. Fink's letter. I'm uh, sitting here at The Standard, where we will be hosting folks for Greenfin 22 in June. And I'm actually looking across the skyline at BlackRock headquarters. So hmm. good time to be reading the letter. But I haven't been to New York City uh, since pre-COVID time. So I've heard plenty about what this place has looked like in the last couple of years, but it's pretty breathtaking. I'm sitting at the Standard Hotel on the High Line, and I've counted probably a total of two humans on the High Line, uh, and I spent a fair amount of time looking out this window. So 
it's hmm. uh, it's interesting to say the least. Yeah, wow, it is interesting. So you're looking over at BlackRock headquarters from where you're sitting. Um, uh, what what did he actually say this year, uh, Larry Fink? That's that may be different. I mean, you know, it, it read to me like not a lot of new stuff to see here. But what did you mm. see? Yeah, well, as someone uh, described it in my LinkedIn universe this time, it was the Sermon on the Mountain of Money, which <laughs> I kind of appreciated. Uh, but I think the key difference, I guess, I would say, is the premium on purpose. Uh, I think my math might be off by one or two counts, but mentioned purpose the same number of times as he mentioned capitalism in a essay titled The Power of Capitalism. So I think it just reinforced that we are clearly in an existential crisis, we being our species and our societies on earth. Uh, and this kind of reinforced that companies, to be a company that at least BlackRock would want to invest its clients' money in, has to have a very clear, defined, concise, and kind of lucid purpose, um, given that we're in an existential crisis. So uh, I think that rang loud and clear. And I think if I were CEO on the other other end of this uh, letter, I would have heard that loud and clear as well. He, he seemed to get a little defensive at one point when he it was, seemed to be um, standing up to those who were saying that all this emphasis on purpose and, and sustainability and, and even ESG, it, it's not woke capitalism. And, and I mean, that's mm -hmm. the, the charge of others. And he, he sort of stood up to that. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, I, well, I... I could say a lot about that one, to be honest, but I feel a little like, well, starting point is what is woke, I guess, is a good starting point. It's a term that's been around 15-ish years. At this point, it basically encompasses the state of being alert to racial prejudice and discrimination and just broader awareness of social inequalities. I realize it's been kind of used in a pejorative sense to describe ideologies that tend to be maybe performative or insincere or overzealous uh, when it comes to these issues that surround inequality. But I found the defensiveness a little interesting. Um, and I think the New York Times framed this letter as um, Larry Fink playing defense on ESG, but it feels like it's oftentimes the exact reverse of that where companies, and I'm not naming specific companies, it just is sometimes a trend where X, Y, or Z social issue crops up in a society and company responds through oftentimes performative or insincere gestures like you know a Black Lives Matter icon on the company's uh, social media handle for a week and then Maybe it's taken down later and the actual issues that maybe exist in that company that they could substantively address aren't prioritized. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see that in reverse. So when, every year when this letter comes out, um, those of us in sustainability largely cheer on uh, the, the sentiment, at least, of, of Larry Fink's letter, if not every word. Um, and I know there are certainly some in the environmental activist community who, who don't like this. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks in the business community who similarly find this uh, distasteful in some way. Uh, so this is this is not without controversy, even though he's talking about mm -hmm. purpose and business and it's capitalism and this is how we make money and this is how we need to move forward to continue to make money in the future. Uh, how controversial do you think this is? Yeah, well, I've had a few conversations on this in the last 24 hours with the full range of, like you said, the the people that cheer any kind of communication from the business and investment community about purpose and about uh, any kind of issue to remedy climate change and the injustices that surround it, all the way to the other end of the spectrum of like, this is in some ways just corrupt and removed from society at large and kind of like maybe has the ring to it of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, I would say is the most 
firm critique. I don't remember whose quote that is, but it was definitely ringing in my head a little bit as I read this, uh, picturing what, you know, if Mr. Fink had an exceptionally long lifespan, what his uh, 2060 letter to CEOs might sound like. So, um, yeah, and, and the other part I would highlight that I think people on the farther towards away from the cheering end of the spectrum who maybe had took issue with is the, I think the line was that political activists or the media may politicize things your company does. They may hijack your brand to advance their own agendas. Uh, not denying that that's the case, but I think there's a sense on the other end of the spectrum that I mentioned that kind of everything a company does is political in a sense, like not in the red blue public affairs of a country type of political, but in the sense that politics is the set of activities associated with decision-making in groups about the distribution of resources. And I don't think it makes sense entirely to frame commerce as this apolitical thing that sometimes shares opinions on social issues, oftentimes through advertisements or has lobbyists in Washington pushing for certain goals. It, it is inherently a, a political thing to do when you're running a company in my sense, but that might not be the most popular quote, but um, I think that's a sentiment that's shared by a number in the sustainability community. So before I let you go, Grant, uh... In the end, do you think that these letters actually make a difference? Um, what, what difference does it actually have in terms of how CEOs and companies behave after these letters come out? Well, uh, I would say, yes, it does have an impact. I, I don't know how I'd measure that, but when $10 trillion speaks, I think pretty much everybody who has a stake in commerce listens, uh, CEOs all the way down to you and I talking all the way down to the person I'm going to talk to on the subway when I go head towards BlackRock headquarters today. But I think, yeah, it's a conversation starter. It all, I mean, it dredges up the, like I'm drawing the spectrum, the other side of the equation brings us closer to a middle ground, I guess, which is a foreign concept to the world that we've lived in uh, for a while now. But yeah, the, I will say the part of this letter, particularly purpose and the premium on purpose was great. But I think the really substantive part that I am going to pay close attention to and imagine a lot of peers will is the beefing up of the stewardship team. Um, he made very clear in the letter that divestment is not of interest to BlackRock as an approach. I think I, I agree with that for the most part, um, but the, the largest stewardship team in the asset management industry that's this committed to engaging with companies in this year, second year of the decisive decade, I'm really curious to see what kind of impact. It's, it's certainly going to have an impact. I'm curious what type of impact it has. So I'll be keeping a close eye on that, but yeah, that's, a, that's the most tangible beneficial outcome, I think, from this year's letter from Mr. Fink. As will we all be watching to see what kind of impact it has. Grant Harrison is Green Finance and ESG analyst at GreenBiz, and he also edits the, uh, writes the uh, GreenFin weekly newsletter, comes out every Wednesday. Check that out. Um, and uh, talking about Larry Fink's 2022 letter. Thanks, Grant. Thank you, Joel. Great to talk. Our colleague, John Davies, who runs the GreenBiz Executive Network, recently attended something called the Potato Expo 2022. Yeah, I mean, that's the setup. I don't have anything else to say except that John joins me now. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about Potato Expo 2022. First of all, why were you there and what, if anything, did it have to do with sustainability? Well, I was there. Well, Potato Expo 2022 is the premier event for the potato industry in the United States. So who could resist? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it just seemed like something that would be that I could really dig. So 
Nice. I tried to do that, yeah. Joel. Um, so anyway, it, it brings together farmers, equipment manufacturers, uh, all different aspects of the industry, uh, people who produce seed potatoes. There's there's one called the Sinatra mm. that I thought you would like. Yeah, for people who like to have their fries my way. So, yeah, um, you know, I was there at the invitation of Brandy Wilson, who leads sustainability at Simplot, which is like one of the largest privately owned companies in the world. And they supply the majority of French fries to McDonald's, at least in the United States. And so sustainability, what was the was that a part of this and how much was that part of the conversation? So it's a pretty big part of it. And, the, you know, I liken it sort of to there's, there's this group that's formed called the Potato Sustainability Alliance. And I'd sort of liken it to uh, an organization that you wrote about several years ago, the Beef Sustainability Roundtable, in that, like others in supply chains, they're getting all of these surveys from all different organizations and there's really no standardization. So this organization has come together to try and really provide a standard way to respond to all of these requests. So can you talk a little bit about what are the problems, environmentally speaking, with potatoes? Well, there are no problems. It's just getting, getting an agreement on the data. Because different organizations will ask, you know, different retailers will ask different questions. And they're all getting at something slightly different. But if you ask a potato grower about no-till agriculture, right, it's potatoes. You dig them out of the ground. There's no way to get to no-till with a potato. Um, so they just want to see more standardization around the data that's being asked of the farmers. So maybe the best thing is to hear from Brandy, as well as John Mesco, who leads the Potato Sustainability Alliance. I'm Brandy Wilson. I'm the Sustainability Director for the Simplot Company. And what I'm really looking forward to for potato sustainability in 2022 is finally being able to truly collaborate and capitalize on all of these relationships. Like we have relationships with the food companies, we have relationships with the farmers on a bunch of different levels as suppliers and as customers and just as people that we've worked with for a long time. And I feel like right now with the Potato Sustainability Alliance and some other things that we're involved with that people are finally coming together to say, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to measure ourselves? How are we going to make progress? And that's really exciting. I'm John Mesco. I'm the executive director of the Potato Sustainability Alliance. And in 2022, we're going to be working on program development. We are currently working on a program for greenhouse gas metrics and measurements and reporting. Uh, we'll also be working on one about uh, food waste and farmer livelihood. Uh, in 2022, Potato Sustainability Alliance, our goal is to have the potato industry aligned around sustainability issues like those. Okay, so far so good. Who else did you talk to down there? Well, I talked to a wide range of people, anywhere from uh, growers to finance folks, technologists, um, just a whole spectrum. I wanted to get as much as I, I could in terms of the information. And growing potatoes is a lot more complicated than I ever thought about before and i'm not even going to try and 
demonstrate any expertise, but there's a lot that's going on in terms of soil health. And I think, you know, maybe the best thing to talk about that is from a farmer's perspective, but also from the perspective of market opportunities. So here's what I heard from a farmer as well as from a financial institution. Hi, Chad Berry from Under the Hill Farms from Manitoba, Canada. I'm director on the PSA board. Uh, looking forward to a future where we're improving, making the environment better, making our farms more efficient and more profitable, making a quality product for consumers. Hi, my name is Christian Barkin. I am the sustainability officer for Rabo Agri Finance, uh, rural side of the Rabo Bank in North America. Um, excited to be here at the Potato Expo. There's a lot of discussions around sustainability and what's new around sustainability, which focuses a lot in regenerative agriculture and uh, carbon credits and the future of doing more with less and increasing yield with less input. We're happy to uh, be a part of that effort through the carbon banking program that we, we have in place and piloted in, in 2021. We're looking forward to expand that in 2022 and work with the industry to see if we can create a, uh, a package for this market segment. John, I imagine that like everything else in sustainability, that technology is playing a bigger and bigger role. It really is. I mean, we just Heather just wrote about the John Deere autonomous tractor. And, and I mean, when I talked to a number of the farmers last week, there's there's a lot of technology that's that's happening on the farm and uh really exciting stuff in terms of just what they can do and you know big data getting involved in it drones all sorts of things and so i talked to patrick williams from simplot about what he's seeing in terms of technology hi i'm patrick williams i'm a senior digital sales advisor for simplot grow solutions in pasco washington uh, we're using a number of different technologies on our potatoes right now to help us be more sustainable and work towards a better future in crop production. We're utilizing things like soil conductivity mapping and satellite imagery to create management zones within fields that we can then use to apply variable rate soil amendments like lime or elemental sulfur and variable rate nutrients. And then in season, we're using technology like soil moisture monitors to better monitor how much and when we are going to water and then we're also using technology like drones and ai and machine learning to identify specific weeds and diseases and better time our applications and make sure that they're actually needed uh, at harvest time we're running potato yield monitors on diggers with our customers and we're collecting that data and better measuring the results of these programs that we're implementing and by doing so we can adjust for the next season or or the next time that potatoes come around on on the rotation and so there's a lot going on that we can do but what it really comes down to is in the long run we've got to be looking not just at these reactionary systems but at uh, predictive analytics and, and different types of analytics that we probably don't even know about yet to help us better uh, sustain the fields, the soil, and, and our world. So, first of all, I'm entirely jealous. You had me at potato. I didn't care about the expo or, you know, sustainability is, is, is nice, but I love potatoes. Uh, what was your favorite part of all this? 
Well, I'd have to say, unfortunately, there were no French fries, but we did have a lunch <laughs> with a baked potato with all the fixings. But I think my, my favorite part, and I think this was the hit of the event for just about anyone who attended, is that they had potato virus detecting dogs that they would uh, have one potato that had a virus on it among many others, and they'd let the dog out of its little uh, cage come around and pick the exact potato that had the virus and then look up at its owner. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was amazing. And this is a service where they're using dogs to go out into fields or to go into storage barns and you know, find any area that there's a disease so it can be eradicated before a planting or during storage. That's nothing to sniff at. Um, John Davies, being out in the field, almost literally, talking about the potatoes from the Potato Expo 2022. John, thanks for taking one for the team. Thanks a lot, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. We have seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Oh, and by the way, be sure to tune in next Monday, January 24th, for a webcast uh, marking the launch of our 2022 State of Green Business Report, our 15th annual. It's going to feature a panel of analysts from GreenBiz, along with our friend Richard Madison from S&P Global. Um, you can sign up for that. Uh, it'll be uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Monday the 24th. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.